from Podimo, this is Cold Blood, Nordic True Crime. The Gamma Bomber At the end of the 1970s, a bomb goes off in a municipality near Copenhagen. This begins one of the most extraordinary cases in the history of crimes in Denmark. When another bomb goes off, it's soon painfully clear that this explosion was not an isolated incident. These bombs fill the everyday life of Copenhagen's residents with fear, leading everyone to ask themselves the same questions. Who is this terrifying bomber? Are they working alone? Or are more people responsible for the explosions? Is this the work of one troubled person or a terrorist organization? What is the motive behind the explosions? The case we're going to describe is among the most unusual ones in the history of crimes in Denmark. It's the end of the 1970s, and someone is terrorizing the residents of Copenhagen. The city's residents are constantly afraid of the bomber. Terrified of another explosion, they wonder, who is the bomber, and what are their intentions? The story starts on the 4th of September 1977. It's 2am. A lone cyclist rides down the street. Slowly, but surely, he reaches the corner, gets off his bike and approaches a telephone booth. The man carefully looks around as if afraid that someone might be watching him. When he's sure that no one's watching, he places his bag on the ground. Then he goes into the booth and checks it thoroughly. After opening and closing the door a few times, He examines the floor and ceiling, then looks at the side panels. The man finishes deliberating and returns to his bag, taking out a cylindrical object. He fixes the pipe to the ceiling of the phone booth with a few pieces of insulation tape, then pulls a wire from inside it to the upper edge of the door. Leaving the booth, he contemplates his work for a moment. Finally, he throws a letter inside and closes the door. He calmly gets onto his bike and rides away into the night. At 6.35am, a woman working for a Copenhagen telephone company drives her delivery van to that same telephone booth to empty the coin container. She approaches the booth, as she's done many times before, suspecting nothing. When she opens the door, a terrible bang rips through the air and the woman is thrown backwards onto the ground. The windows of the booth are shattered and glass shards and metal pieces are scattered around a 10-meter radius. It's a miracle that the woman only sustains superficial injuries. The explosion causes her to suffer from acute ear trauma and she loses her hearing for a short time. The local police are notified about the explosion and a patrol arrives soon after. They immediately secure the area. Specialist police officers from the main Copenhagen police station are called to the scene. During the initial examination of the crime scene, they learn that someone placed a pipe bomb in the booth. It was made from a piece of water pipe, 110 millimeters long and 21 millimeters in diameter, and insulated at both ends with cork. The remains of the pipe are handed over to the Danish Association of Engineers as their specialists are the most experienced in the country when it comes to explosives. After closer inspection of the charge, the experts conclude that the bomb was homemade. 
The way the charge was placed suggests to investigators that the bomber intended for the explosion to be triggered by an unaware person performing a routine and everyday action. Besides the remains of the bomb, the police also find a letter left in the booth. It read, Bomb 1. Round 1. That thing at Bausford Station was a good job, but too primitive for my tastes. My bomb is more sophisticated. P.S. There are no fingerprints on this piece of paper. Please save yourself the trouble. Greetings. The words are followed by a symbol that looks like a mirrored number seven. The bomber refers to an explosion that took place a few weeks earlier at the Bowsford train station. A 17-year-old and his 20-year-old friend detonated a homemade bomb there, but it only caused material losses. There was no other motive except for their interest in chemistry. Both culprits deny they know anything about the mysterious explosion in the telephone booth. It appears that the phone booth explosion and the one from the train station are not the work of the same people. So who is behind the phone booth explosion? Why did the perpetrator use a mirrored number 7 as a signature? And what do bomb 1 and round 1 mean? Will more bombs be detonated? The police are fumbling in the dark. They have no leads that could help them identify the mysterious perpetrator, who is quickly named a bomber. The police begin questioning the people living in the immediate area of the crime scene. The media show a strong interest in the case, attracting attention to it, and so the police quickly obtain a large amount of information from people who think they know something that can help the investigation. A reward is posted, offering anyone who can provide important information about the perpetrator 5,000 kroner, about 600 pounds. As is to be expected, this results in the police receiving even more tips from the public. Each tip is carefully analysed, taking up a lot of resources, but unfortunately, no new information is found. Barely a week later, the inhabitants of Copenhagen are exposed to another explosion. It's the 11th of August, 1977. A waiter living in a block of flats in the Copenhagen suburbs usually calls a taxi from a nearby telephone booth to get to work early in the morning. He has no phone at home, and it's too early for buses and trains. As usual, he leaves his flat a few minutes past 4am and goes to the telephone booth he always uses. It's about 10 past 4 in the morning. He opens the door to the booth and it explodes. The waiter sustains many cuts to his face and hands and his right eardrum is ruptured, but he escapes with his life. There's also an enormous bruise on his right shoulder. His injuries are more serious than those of the last bomb's victim, and he is understandably in shock. A nearby newspaper delivery boy hears the explosion. He sees the waiter lying on the ground holding his right hand. The injured man calls out to the boy and asks him to call an ambulance, which he does. Then the boy helps the injured waiter as best he can. When the police are alerted, they immediately send a unit to secure the area. A specialist police unit is also called. This time, fingerprint specialists also come to the scene, as well as the chiefs of the criminology division. Again, the police talk to the witnesses living in the immediate area of the phone booth. A few hundred people are questioned, but none of them provide any clues that could lead them to the perpetrator. The Forensic Science Division begins a detailed examination. 
they make drawings of the phone booth and take photos of it, and the Danish Association of Engineers are once again asked to carefully examine the remains of the bomb. The results suggest that the second bomb was constructed and planted in exactly the same manner as the first. It went off when the booth door was opened. And just like with the first bomb, the perpetrator left a letter. He thinks that the prize offered by the police is amusing because no one is likely to risk their life for 5,000 kroner. KTAS, the company responsible for the telephone booths, are in despair. They feel obliged to take action that could try to put an end to the bomb attacks. In the end, they decide to remove the door from all phone booths in Copenhagen. The police also order its officers to take decisive actions. They help KTAS to remove the doors, monitor the phone booths, and question numerous people who could know something about the case. Meanwhile, they also organize press conferences, hoping that with the media's help, they might get important information from residents. The Forensic Science Department of the Danish police work for almost 24 hours a day, and the personnel from the Gladsaxe police station located in the Copenhagen suburbs where the bombs went off, repeatedly ask for training. During those meetings, the officers receive recommendations on how they should act in future operations of this nature, especially with regard to explosive charges, keeping a safe distance, and dealing with panicked locals. The police patrol the streets more often, paying special attention to the phone booths. Specialist police officers also join the patrols, and strategically important locations are monitored by the security services. Information from the locals is still coming in, and witness statements continue to be collected. The case requires the involvement of many people, and many hours of overtime. The perpetrator used the mirrored number 7 as his signature, and many theories are created about it. The police conduct a detailed examination, searching for the symbol in novels, documents, and any other sources they can think of. But no one can solve the mysterious riddle of the mirrored number seven. All the police stations in Copenhagen are constantly discussing the bomber, investigating the case 24 hours a day. On Friday the 19th of August 1977 at 6.30am, the police are notified about another bomb. It's the third such case in 14 days. A woman was working for KTAS in the street called Morg Highway in the town of Sorborg in Gladsaxe municipality. She discovered a bomb in a telephone booth and immediately raised the alarm. She had gone to empty the coin box of a phone booth that was partly hidden behind bushes near buildings 239 to 241. Luckily, the KTAS worker was alert. On approaching the booth, she discovered a wire pulled through a hole half a meter above the floor. The hole was there after the door had been removed by the police and the telephone company, following the second bombing. Without walking inside, the woman had a closer look and discovered something under the shelf for the phone book. Fixed in place with adhesive tape, she saw what looked like a pipe bomb. The woman immediately asked the first passerby to call the police, staying near the booth and stopping people from going inside and setting the bomb off. While she's waiting, a policeman rides by on a motorbike. The woman stops him and tells him about the situation. The police officer immediately reports to the main police station through the radio so that the right police station in the area can be notified. 
Police officers are immediately sent to the scene, and they secure the area 25 meters around the potentially explosive device. During the last few weeks, someone had been placing false bombs around Copenhagen. Even though it was probably just a stupid juvenile prank, the officers needed to be careful. Forensic technicians are called to determine whether this one had a real explosive charge. When the specialists arrive at the scene, they identify it as a real pipe bomb. They immediately call a team from the Association of Engineers, which sends an officer who specializes in pipe bomb devices. They decide to dismantle the bomb. This is extremely important, as the bomb can only be examined for evidence later, if it's complete. Meanwhile, sand-filled bags have been brought to the booth and placed around it for safety. As the explosive experts begin their work, the secure area around the booth is increased to 50 meters. When the experts are ready to remove the bomb, traffic is halted in the Mark Highway vicinity to stop people from getting hurt in the event that the bomb does explode. An eerie silence falls over the scene as the bomb is just minutes away from being disarmed. It's 7.54 a.m. and the silence is shattered as the phone in the booth rings. The police and the explosives team decide not to answer it. They assume it's the perpetrator calling, hoping to lure someone inside to detonate the bomb. The duty officer from the main police headquarters is told about the call. Together with the telephone operator and the Copenhagen Alert Center, they launch a system blocking incoming phone calls to that booth until they know where the call came from. It later turns out that the call was from one of the presidents of the telephone company, trying to contact a worker and tell them he was going to the phone booth. After the bomb is disarmed, fingerprint recovery experts get to work and find another letter from the perpetrator left between the phone books. There are no fingerprints on this letter either. Once removed from the scene, specialists from the Association of Engineers closely examine the bomb. Their report contains detailed descriptions of the bomb's construction and its elements. The investigators contact the producers and sellers of various parts of the bomb to see if they can establish the identity of the buyer. Unfortunately, this brings no results. Returning to the letter left at the scene, just like it was in the case of the two previous attacks, investigators find it was written on a special type of graph paper. They contact the paper producer to see if this could yield any new information. Creating long lists of firms, universities, and people who regularly use this kind of paper is very time-consuming. It requires a few hundred interviews and a large-scale investigation. But once again, no new leads are found. Police handwriting experts meticulously analyze the letter. This time, its contents are more unclear and frightening in comparison to the previous ones. The letter says... Bomb 3. Round 2. Hello again, little Denmark. This is the usual Thursday bomb. Getting rid of the phone booth door forced me to construct a new detonator. Aarhus gave me the idea for an electronic ignition, and my tripwire that cuts all contact can be used in other scenarios. What happened to Black Ring? Calling me Bomber 7 might be troublesome, so from now on I will be called the Invisible X. 
This is also the last Thursday bomb you will get. From now on, the bombings will be happening irregularly and more spread out, and not only targeting telephone booths in Gladzexa. I will be fighting the police, and I'll put a bullet between the eyes of anyone who gets in my way. Greetings, the Invisible X. The questions are multiplying. Are the police fighting a mysterious terrorist organization? Who or what is the Black Ring? What does the Invisible X mean when writing about drawing inspiration from Aarhus? Why was the handwriting so irregular? Only a few of these questions are answered. The Aarhus reference is quickly explained. A few days earlier, there had been a series of bomb threats there. The newspapers reported that someone had threatened to blow up phone booths and that it was probably what inspired the bomber. Police handwriting experts examined the letter closely and believe the perpetrator wrote that way, in broken Danish and in capital letters, on purpose. The experts are also convinced that it must be an older person because, among the other clues in the use of Danish, the spelling of Aarhus, with a double A, is now considered obsolete. However, there's also another interesting detail this time. The third bomb has an electronic ignition. The bomber is improving, and his bombs are getting more sophisticated. Luckily for the residents and the police, nothing else happens for now. It appears that the criminal has taken a break. Months pass. But then, on the 13th of October 1977, it starts again. It's Thursday, about 12.45pm and a 14-year-old girl comes back from school earlier than usual. She's going to her father's car to get the needlework she left there the day before, as she's going to work on it this afternoon. The car is parked in the Bronschoy district in Copenhagen, on the street where the family lives. The girl got the car keys from her father. When she gets to the vehicle, she unlocks the back door on the passenger side and opens it by no more than 20 centimetres. By chance, she notices something on the inside of the door, an item that looks like a pipe. She immediately slams the door shut, runs back to her father, and tells him what she saw. The car is used by the girl's father and her older sister. Both sister and father have their own keys, but the father is certain that his daughter hasn't used the car recently. He immediately calls the police, and they in turn contact the specialist crime unit crime unit who worked on the previous cases is asked to secure the evidence at the crime scene. The experts examine the item fixed to the armrest on the inside of the door and they conclude that it's a real bomb. Explosive experts from the Danish military are summoned to disarm it. When the bomb is disarmed, it is taken to the military laboratory in Farum, about 20 kilometers north of Copenhagen, for further examination. No fingerprints are found on the item this time either, but the experts do find something in the car. There's a glove print on the inside of the car window. The inhabitants of the nearby building are questioned, but as usual, nobody saw anyone suspicious tampering with the car. The investigators learned that there have been some disagreements in the building between the girl's father and another family the police decide to look more closely at everything that could be connected in any way and want to question the other family. 
they get a search warrant, but the results lead nowhere. Any hopes of finding clues were in vain. The argument between the neighbours is eventually not considered to be relevant, because when the forensic technicians examine the car further, they find another letter, similar to the previous ones. Both the paper and handwriting are the same. But this time the letter is longer. Here's a part of it. Bomb 4 Series 1 Ladies and gentlemen, it's been a while since you've heard about the Invisible X, but here I strike again. My next targets will be cars and buses, and also public buildings like town halls, post offices, police stations, and kindergartens. Introducing the death penalty for terrorists in Denmark has caused an increase in the Invisible X's activity. There are now three of us. No one can stop us. Long live fascism. Greetings, the Invisible X's. In the letter, the perpetrator also mentions that this time he used an older type of bomb, but next time he'll use a more sophisticated version with a timer that can be set to as short as five minutes or as long as ten hours. He also writes that he'd like to advise people to keep away from public waste bins. However, this time, the letter contains some information that can be useful for the investigators. It reveals that the bomber or bombers belong to the extreme right wing. They're members of a fascist organization and they follow the public debate. At the beginning of that week, Moens Glistrup, the founder of a right-wing Danish party, Fremskridspartiet, announced in a TV program that because of the numerous bomb attacks, capital punishment should be introduced as the penalty for terrorism in Denmark. According to his proposal, the death penalty should be in effect if the majority of the composition of the Supreme Court are in favor of it. His declaration causes a stormy debate. In the end, he apologizes and withdraws the proposal, which he later describes as non-democratic. The victims of the bomb attacks are frightened and worried. The 14-year-old, who could have been another victim if the fourth bomb exploded, says to the extra blurred tabloid that she'd like to ask the bomber to turn himself in to the police. She writes an open letter to the perpetrator, which is later published by the paper. Dear Bomber, Could you stop scaring us so much? Remember, next time, you could become a killer. It would be best if you turned yourself into the police, but if you don't want to do that, at least promise me that you will finally end this. We want to live in peace. The case becomes a priority for the police in the whole Copenhagen area. The police from Copenhagen and from the Gladsexum municipality cooperate to find the culprit. The attacks have to stop, and fast, before someone dies. About a month after the fourth bomb was found, on Friday the 11th of November 1977, something strange happens. It's 8.30am, and a 16-year-old boy is walking to school. He's late because he overslept. He arrives at the Enkhevagard School in Gledzexa about half an hour after classes have started. When he's close to the door he notices something in a sandpit in the empty schoolyard. A yellow toy truck and a strange metal object. He gets closer for a better look. 
It looks to him like a cable and a pipe stuck in the sand. The boy reports his findings to the school administration, who immediately call the police. The duty officer of the Gladzexer police notifies the specialist police unit. They immediately go to the school with a team of forensic technicians. When they arrive, they find a steel pipe stuck in the sand attached to a matchbox with wires. It's also connected to the yellow toy truck about 20 centimeters away. The bomb is attached to a toy. The pipe is about 13 centimeters long, with plugs at both ends. The matchbox has connections for a common 9-volt battery, but that battery is missing. Again, the police are not certain if the bomb is real or just a dummy. The press have frequently written about the attacks, which has encouraged some thoughtless individuals to place dummy bombs across Copenhagen and other bigger cities. But the forensic technicians get the information that what they found is real and can be classified as life-threatening. The experts dressed in special sapper suits take photos of the bomb and its components. The school is evacuated. Explosive specialists from the base in Farum arrive at the scene, and the bomb is carefully taken into a laboratory where it will be analysed. Meanwhile, the students are asked if they saw anything suspicious when they came to the school in the morning. Only a few students come forward, and they are talked to individually. One of the girls says that she saw a man in red clogs kneeling on the ground near one of the school sandpits. He thought it was unusual because adults rarely play in the sand. An identikit portrait based on her description is made and then published. It provokes different reactions from society. Some of the witnesses who come forward after seeing the identikit claim they noticed a man in red clogs near the school riding a Chinese electric motorcycle. All electric motorcycles and their chassis numbers in the Gladzexa area are checked, and their owners are identified. Every electric motorcycle owner has to submit a statement explaining where they were that morning. The police locate one man in particular who owns a Chinese electric motorcycle. They search his house and find a pair of red wooden shoes. The man is apprehended and stays in jail for a few days while the police continue to investigate him. It eventually turns out that he had nothing to do with the bombs. One of the students, an eight-year-old boy, says that when he came to the school that morning, he saw a small yellow toy truck in the sandpit. He played with it a little and discovered that there was a cable attached to the truck. When he pulled the cable, a pipe with wires that had been buried in the sand came out. The boy played with the truck a while longer, and when the bell rang, he put the toy back in the sandpit. It's a miracle the boy who found the bomb wasn't hurt. The bomb did not explode, probably due to the battery falling out. The strength of the explosion could have killed one of the students. This time, the police find no letters. But they find something on the truck's radiator, a mirrored number seven. The investigators have no doubt it's the same bomber again. Many meetings are called and all police units participate in them, while the forensic technicians use that opportunity to explain the technical details of constructing a pipe bomb to the whole team. In this case, the explosive is made of a steel pipe, 12 millimeters in diameter, and sealed with plugs on both ends. It's attached to a yellow truck, a Leslie number no. 6 dump truck, with a mirrored number no. 7 on the front. 
There's a black thread between one of the three axles on the truck. It leads to a switch that when the thread is pulled can cause the battery-powered bomb to go off. All the recovered parts are checked for information about their place of origin and their buyers or sellers. When it comes to the toy, the trail leads to England and then goes back to the sellers in Denmark. Following it requires a lot of work. Over 100,000 of those trucks were sold in Denmark between 1964 and 1968. At first glance, it doesn't seem like any useful information can be obtained by following this lead. But one thing is certain. The perpetrator is an unscrupulous, emotionless person. It is only by a stroke of luck that they haven't killed anyone yet. Of course, the press are regularly informed about the investigation's progress. The more information there is, the more newspaper columns describing the case appear. People are following the case with great interest. On the other hand, the clues coming into the central office are of varying quality. The investigation continues, but the police will have to wait a long time for a breakthrough. About four weeks after the last bomb was discovered, on Thursday the 1st of December 1977, at 5.30 in the morning, an explosion echoes through the northwestern part of Copenhagen. The alarm is raised, and the full workings of the police force are set in motion. The scene is isolated, and the witnesses are questioned. Even though most people ran to the windows to see what was happening after the explosion, no one noticed anything that could help in the investigation. Forensic experts who arrive at the scene say that the bomb was sophisticated. The explosive had integrated circuits and was placed in a plastic sandwich box, then hidden in a plastic bag. It had a 9-volt electronic ignition and a switch for setting a timer. There was also a switch in the lunchbox that would make the bomb go off if anyone tried to lift it or move the plastic bag. The main switch was on top of the box, so after the bomb was planted, the switch could be used to activate the integrated circuit. The explosion is powerful. The steel pipe that held the explosives is bent and twisted. Other parts are thrown across a large area, and two large mirrors and several glass signs are shattered in a nearby shop. Forensic technicians find another letter from the bomber, written on the same kind of graph paper. The explosion tore the letter to pieces, but the experts managed to put them together and decipher the text. Still, they find no new information about the culprit. The letter contains a warning that the next bomb will be detonated in the center of Copenhagen. This time, the perpetrator signs the letter the Gamma Bomber instead of the Invisible X. The mirrored number 7 can be read as Gamma, the third letter of the Greek alphabet. No fingerprints are found either on the bomb parts or the letter. It's December, and Christmas is approaching. According to what the bomber wrote in the last letter, the next bomb will be detonated in the center of Copenhagen. The police are afraid that it might happen in a department store or another large shop. With the help of the press, the services urge residents to immediately notify the police if they spot bags, plastic bags, or other unattended items. The information causes people to panic, and the people get numerous alerts about abandoned items, suitcases, handbags, bags, and packages. 
Even though the police have little time and are experiencing staff shortages during this investigation, they treat every lead seriously and pay attention to even the smallest pieces of information. They don't want to take any risks. If just one person or a few were injured or maybe even killed during the Christmas season, the results would be catastrophic. Police officers and ordinary citizens all hope that Christmas will be calm and pass without any attack. But that is not going to happen. That was part one of the Gamma Bomber. Listen to part two next week to find out what happened next in this mysterious series of pipe bombings in Denmark. From Podimo, this was Cold Blood Nordic True Crime. A new episode every week wherever you get your podcasts. For early access to episodes and to listen ad-free, subscribe to Podimo UK on Apple Podcasts.